talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And this week we are back with another game deep dive episode to talk about Jai Per, the 2009 two-player beloved card game by Sebastian Pouchin. Uh, Jake, I am curious, before we get into our overviews, is this a game that you have any experience with ever in your life? Have you played this game before we decided that we'd load it up in the old interdecisional spaceship? Nope, I've only played this online on Board Game Arena. So keep that in mind uh, as we go into this conversation. Amazing. And I, this is great. So I have, I own this game and I've owned it since around 2014. Uh, it's, so I picked it up around five years after it came out and it had a really good reputation when I bought it. It's a game that my wife and I played a bunch and then drifted away from. Uh, but before saying more, Jake, let's get into it. I want to hear your synopsis. All right. Jaipur is the perfect distillation of a set collection game. It's easy to learn, surprisingly deep strategically, and it's a game that I've had a little bit of difficulty finding the fun in. There are a few uh, design decisions that I don't agree with, and, and perhaps this is just me reacting to, to set collection as the main course, as opposed to part of a medley in a bigger uh, game uh, that I'm bouncing off of. But for me, I'm giving this game just a 5 out of 10. It's it's a game that's pretty easy for me to to kind of take or leave. Kind of like the brown cards or the green cards. Okay, my synopsis. Jaipur is like a sleight of hand trick. Its core design ethos is to subvert the numbers on cards trope. To do so, it transposes the numbers onto rupee tokens off to the side. This clever twist is a real charmer, like a simple magic trick, and it offers the game's decision space a more consistent feel, enabling cutthroat tactics as players strive to gain tempo and undercut their opponents. Though something of the magic of card games, that possibility of errant randomness producing interesting moments, melts away leaving something to be desired when you understand the method behind the sleight of hand. Six out of ten. Wow, I'm surprised. I thought this was going to be one that we were very far apart on. I'm so excited. <laughs> I thought, I would have guessed that you would have been like a nine on this one. Uh, well, see, I knew that you were going to guess that because in our Discord, you've been telling people that I'm a rigger for 82-player <laughs> simple card game. So I was excited going into this to sort of subvert people's expectations. And I think a lot of people seeing this will expect that we really enjoy this game. So it sh we should be in for a really interesting episode, knowing that yet another week in a row, we're tackling a game with qualms. Yeah, let's let's get right into it. Awesome. So... This, as I said before, is a game designed by Sebastian Pouchon. Um, he is the designer of other games like Metro uh, 38 other published games, which I think is amazing. That's a huge ludography for any designer to have. And I would say Jaipur is by far his most well-known and most celebrated game. As of this recording, it is the 141st ranked game on BoardGameGeek of all time, which is really impressive for a card game where BoardGameGeek skews heavier and also even more impressive for a two-player card game. Uh, not a lot of 
board games come out that are just specifically targeted at two players and do as well as Jaipur does. He's also designed some other games like Corinth, The the River, Metropolis, and then Skyrise, which is a re-implementation of his game Metropolis, which is coming out this year. Um, a lot of the games that uh, he's designed have beautiful, beautiful art, and I would say Jaipur included in that. Um, and I always like reading the tagline if they're included on Board Game Geek. So the tagline here is, trade and sell goods to become the most wealthy merchant in the short game for two. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also important to note with this game is just the the way people revere it in the board game mm. community. When I first really delved deep into this hobby uh, in 2015, it was you know, and I'm like looking at lists, best games, best two player games. Jaipur is coming up over and over again. And I still think that's the case if you're, you know, in on Reddit, on the board game group, or you're on Facebook in uh, one of the bigger board gaming pages and you're asked and you see people asking for, you know, suggestions for games to take on a trip, games to play with the partner. Like Jaipur is like omnipresent on those lists. Yeah, it's almost like the default couples game that gets recommended, maybe along something like Patchwork. Um, and it's probably the simplest one. And I feel like part of that, I don't think we'll reserve too much time in our discussion later on, but I feel like a huge aspect of that is the production design of Jaipur is just gorgeous. Um, I don't know, since you haven't played it in person, Jake, I can tell you the I should have brought my box up here and showed you i thought about it i was going to drop the chips on the table the chips are just cardboard they're not anything that you know they don't have a splendor quality but they're nice they're fun objects and i think bringing the little chips for each gem type um and the camel tokens uh just there's lots of little bits that feel nice there's a really uh the box is longer than a lot of card game boxes a lot of card game boxes are sort of that um like two two to three aspect ratio square. This is more like a 16 by nine aspect ratio. Has a really nice pink insert. I think there's an even newer edition that's even nicer than the version I have. But all you need to know, the production and the presentation of the game is beautiful. The art is all pretty good. Uh, I think that has translated. It's like very pleasant and nice. And it's graphically, it's not cluttered because all of the numbers and all the graphic design is off to the side on these tokens. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, and it does come come through in the implementation online as well, right? Everything is, is super clear, easy to follow and, and nice to look at. Uh, so I can only imagine uh, as these things are much better in person. And there's cute camels. We'd be remiss not to mention the cute camels. But I think with that, let's get into the rules overview, which basically Jaipur is so simple that I'm going to teach you the game in under two minutes. So let's get into it. Jaipur is a two-player set collection hand management card game. Jaipur's deck consists of 55 goods cards of 6 different types and 11 camel cards. Each turn, the player is offered a simple decision. Collect, trade, sell, or take all available camels. To collect, players take one of the 5 available goods cards from a face-up market display and add it to their hand. To trade, players swap any number of cards from their hand with an equal number of cards in the market or do the same using their camels from their available herd, a pool of face-up camel cards not kept in the player's hand. To sell, players sell one or more of the game's base goods, cloth, leather, and spice, or two or more of its higher order goods, gold, silver, and diamonds. But only goods of one type may be sold each turn. 
Players then take an equal number of goods tokens matching the cards sold, which are stacked in descending value by type and limited in quantity. This means that generally the player who sells goods of a given type first will receive more points, however players also receive bonus points for sets of 3, 4, or 5 goods of each type sold, so there's real tension between selling quickly for a high value goods token versus building up large and rewarding sets of the same type of goods in the player's hand. The player with the most camels at game end gains 5 points, and when 3 of the goods token piles run out, the round ends and the player who scored the most points wins the round. The first player to win 2 rounds is the victor, and there's a 7 card hand limit in the game. So we're back from that rules overview. And as we always like to do in decision space is talk about the decision space of a game and characterize it um, in its size, type, feel, clarity, uh, any number of the lenses that we've talked about in many of our what we talk about episodes, pull those out and use them to deconstruct the game and talk about what sort of sets the decision space apart or what doesn't set apart as much. Jake, do you want to tackle this task on the outset? So I think that perhaps the best thing about Jaipur for me is the way that it pulls off an outsized decision space for what you might expect for such a simple game. Uh, you know, really, there are only three things you can be doing on your turn, uh, as you've just explained in your rules overview. Uh, but the impact that they have on the game, the way they impact both your strategy of what you're trying to achieve, uh, the tempo of the game, what they could be taking away from your opponent, creates so such a nuanced texture to the decision space where it feels like more often than you would expect, all three of those uh, options on your turn are, are viable. Uh, whereas in Villagers, the game we talked about last week, it felt like so much of what you're doing there is just uh, an automatic uh, like slam dunk, like, okay, well, definitely I take this card. Definitely I play this card. Here, it feels as though the design of this game has created a much more nuanced texture uh, that really opens up the decision space. That said, it's still on the smaller end of things, I think, uh, because it is so constrained within those three categories. And within each of those, you know, you might only have one or two options. Uh, but it's bigger than you might expect. Yeah, I think bigger than you might expect is a great way to characterize it. And I will, I totally agree with you that the one great thing about the way that each turn is structured is you really do generally have an interesting decision between different viable paths, though there are absolutely slam dunk turns, right? Like you'll have two of the jewel cards in hand and another one just flips off the top and it just feels like, okay, if, if we were playing in person You'd see me draft the tool jewel cards. You flip that after your turn. You just pass it to me and then you take your next turn. You know, like stuff right. like that is it's just so clear what's going to happen. And I think those moments are more feel bad in some ways than exciting for I, me when I've played the game. I totally agree. I, I think a, a lot of that interest is coming in these in-between turns. Like you're waiting for that one gold card you need. And it's trying to figure out like what to do in the interim of like you know before you get what you're ultimately needing hopefully uh what can you do to you know either maximize the the best out of a bad situation or uh delay or stall to 
you know, force your opponent to be the person to reveal the next card. And there's a lot of intrigue, I think, in there. And there is drama, too, whenever a card gets flipped. So to be fair to this game, it definitely creates interesting decisions and a lot of drama for me. Um, And I think, like, when you get down to the type of the decision, so, like, moving away from the size and the type of the decision space, is do you think this is a like a static decision space mm. game? I think it's a punctuated waning decision space game just because there's known probabilities that are shrinking over time. So the what could come out of the deck becomes more and more known the longer the game goes on. And then once basically the resource of the uh, rupees are gone, three piles of those, the game is just over. So I think it's more of a waning with a very static turn structure stapled on top of it. Right. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I guess it definitely does wane over time to the point where you'll have no choices, but it still has this the first turn you have of the game and the last turn you have of the game, like your your decision space, or maybe up until that very last turn, your decision space is going to be very similar to the point where, you know, maybe tax you know, if we want to do the taxonomy of the game, it is overall waning. I think like the effect of playing it, like the the type of decision space, it feels static. It feels like you're doing the same thing and have the same type of options on every single turn of the game. I definitely think that that's fair, especially because I don't know how do, how do I. I think that you're sort of coming off the how similar all the decisions feel. Right. In characterizing the decision space. So even if you're picking different cards, uh, like it in some ways, the difference between the higher order goods and the lower order goods, there are differences. The silver tokens are all worth five. The gems are worth seven at the top of the pile and less later on. And same for gold. And then lower in the lower order goods, the first goods sold of each type can be quite valuable and then less, but they all feel somewhat the same. And I think because the numbers i say that this game is a subversion of the numbers on card genre because in so many ways it feels like someone when this game was designed it could have started as a numbers on cards game where you literally print the rupee values on cards the system works exactly the same except when you sell cards you just get the points printed on the card and instead of there being a all of the browns are the same value and the value comes from when in the game they're sold it's individual brown cards are worth one, 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 one is worth four, one is worth three, one is worth two. Um, I think Jaipur ends up being a more interesting game because of the decisions that it made, but I don't know that it ends up being a more fun game because of those design decisions. And I think that's what both Jake and I were trying to get at before. And it's also what makes, I think, this game so fun the first five times you play it or the first 10 times you play it. And what holds it back in its post five or 10 plays because it starts to feel really samey. Every time you draw a brown card at the start of the game, its value is about the same because it's tied to the top gem on the stack. Yeah. And I, and when you get into many, many plays of this game, right? It, I do think there is enough, you know, intrigue in the decision space. You have enough maneuverability in the way you proceed throughout the game that there is, is enough of a skill ceiling to keep it interesting. Um, but the feel of making those choices in the game, especially for a novice player, uh, you know, I haven't even played this 10 times yet. Um, it 
it, it's really difficult to identify like where in the game things went right or where things went wrong. Uh, I just kind of we come to the end of, of one of these punctuated rounds and, you know, I win by a few points or I lose by a few points or I win by 20 points. And it's like, it doesn't feel like I've done much different to navigate to that outcome, you know, over the course of those plays. Um, you know, it's like, I've, I know there's a lot there, but it's hard to, I think, like immediately grok as well. What about the design do you think encourages that within like the decision space? Like why, why in Jaipur do you feel like the fee, fee, is it feedback? Is it a problem of feedback? Is it the way the cards, is it the randomness in the system that's occluding some of the potential feedback? I think it, I think it's um, that there's enough hidden information Mm -hmm. in just the initial cards that you're dealt um, because those are going to be the most important cards for you to score because those are the ones you're getting early. Uh, as you mentioned, points are so front-loaded in this game, especially in the bottom tier of cards, that uh, you know there are times in the game where it feels like the right move is selling just a single leather because your opponent is likely having that and, and being able to take away that, you know, highest point value of four from them is going to be a big swing in the game. Um, but you could be totally misreading the situation because the leather cards are at the bottom of the deck. Uh, and it's, it's just a, a swing and a miss in terms of tempo. And I think that, you know, a really skilled player is going to be able to better read their opponent's actions, know like what they're trying to do. Uh, and I think being able to like predict and anticipate your opponent's moves in this are going to be almost the only way you can gain an advantage over somebody. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that kind of predicting, anticipating, reacting to your opponent are, are just, I think, in general things that emerge out of repeated plays and games that are, are hard to access early on. Yeah. And it, it's why definitely... are you laughing at me? <laughs> I'm not laughing at you at all. I'm I'm thinking about the game. I, I think that was very succinctly said. Okay. I'm just thinking about how the game itself at, has set up this best of three uh, format. And not a lot of games sort of in their rule book say you have to play this two out of three times. And that's a game of Jaipur. And I think that in playing it in any individual game, it feels fine. It feels like a contained game. It doesn't always feel completely fair. So I understand why they asked you to play two out of three. Um, but I don't, there's no relationship between these individual games of Jaipur that necessarily make that more or less interesting. You're just repeating the game another time, which I think is fine. Again, like it's fine. I don't like that. And I think I had the exact same issue, uh, in Fox in the Forest, a game we've previously reviewed. Mm -hmm. You can go back and listen to that. It just feels to me like a design sort of cop out where it you know it, if it's fun enough to be a really quick filler game that encourages you to play a bunch of games on its own i would prefer that and you could just say hey like let's play best 2 out of 3 here all right no let's make it best 3 out of 5 you know cuz we're having fun doing it and if the game doesn't encourage that on its own it just feels like don't don't force me in the rule set to do that 
It feels like a teacher is saying, like, you're going to sit at this desk and you're going to enjoy <laughs> reading this comic book. Yeah. Um, and it's also, right, it's, it's, I mean, I guess it's a way to mitigate randomness or yeah, to make bigger. that or to make it seem like a more, like, full gaming experience. And I feel like in either of those cases, I kind of reject it. <laughs> sure, <laughs> like, totally. And, and to your point of, a fil- like, a small card game like this should have the kinetic energy that by the time you're done, you just want to play again. I do think that it's great that you brought up Fox in the Forest. It makes a really smart juxtaposition because of the turn structure box in the forest another game that asks you to play uh two probably three games um but there's a point structure that's tied to how those play out where if a round goes really really well for you you might get a big advantage uh going into the next round and your opponent could then have a really strong game back and the the round playing multiple games has this added game element that there even is played with within the game itself with these treasure tokens that give points. So you might want to gain a point really badly um, by winning one of the tricks over the round overall. And it, I think it's doing more interesting things with that overarching structure than Jaipur, which is just, just like play us two out of three times, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very our discussion has been sort of all over the place which is interesting because we do have a bunch of notes um but i'm glad that we sort of had this organic take because i think we're getting at like all of the things that are sort of like jumping out and frustrating us and i think something that follows on that thread i i don't know it, should we just like play the turbulence at the start of this episode is that where we're at <laughs> but uh the I'm, I'm curious what you think of the camels jake so for can I and I'll lead in because I just phrase that like a question, but I'm going to lead in and then I want to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. So th- for me, the camels are probably the most fun mechanic, uh, the most fun, interesting mechanic. I do still think they're an interesting mechanic, and I'm not trying to be mean. I think they're clever. Uh, the camel system, of course, are these camels are these cards where. They don't have intrinsic value in themselves, except for the fact that if you have the most at the end of the game, you get some points. So jockeying for them matters. You can't not care about camels at all. And they also don't gum up your hand, which is an interesting mechanic in a hand management system. These cards that you can get that sit on the table and give you additional potential agency within the game to swap things out. Um, And you can, I think that Jaipur at its best is a game about putting your opponent in bad situations that feel really bad for them. Um, So like if you can set up a situation where you force your opponent to take a bunch of camels when they don't have a lot of cards in their hand and then pass it back to you when you could potentially swap really cleverly and a bunch of new cards are going to be revealed if they take all the camels, um, that can be a really impactful decision point in the game uh, and can potentially be really exciting. And can be really decisive, but sometimes can feel like, ugh, this just didn't go my way at all. Which I we're not two people, Jake, who like have an issue with randomness in games. So I don't necessarily understand why in Jaipur both of us feel more hung up on that. Like this discussion, I feel like in any of the 30 episodes that we've talked about, we don't normally like complain about randomness in games. Yeah. Now it is interesting. Um I to me the the camels feel like a place of great player agency more so so i don't feel for me personally like the randomness brought on by the camels is 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 not something i care about at all because it's such a intentional decision right like sure if you take if there are you know four camels out there 
and you take them all and it reveals four new cards you're you, you know you're well aware that you're probably giving your opponent something that's going to be valuable to them whether that's a card they need to complete their set or the ability to take away a card that you're clearly going for um so you did I, it to yourself yeah I, li- yourself. I, I like that aspect of it as well um and and even you know kind of the interesting dynamic of like you know maybe you just take one card and force your opponents to take the camels i mean five points is is you know in some games like very significant and in others not impactful at all and i think that's also like another kind of area where more experienced players can get a big advantage by knowing how close the scoring likely is in a given game uh, which can be kind of difficult to track at times too for uh, less experienced players because of the face down bonus chips that come into the game. Yeah. So the face down bonus chips, of course, are the uh, chips that you get for collecting sets of three, four, or five. These are different uh, tokens. So if you ever sell a set of goods of the same type that are three, you get one of the three bonus tokens, four, the four bonus tokens, and so on. And they all have a range of bonus points that they could give you. So I think this goes with this theme of like the the other ethos of Jaipur is trying to occlude as much as possible how much the known value of an action within a, within the game is, right? So like, is taking this brown card going to be worth, is it a brown that's going to be worth four points? or one point, or some other combination. Uh, And that's potentially the most clever aspect. And this set bonus plays into that as well, because if you trade a set of three, it could be one, two, or three points. A trade in a set of four, it could be four, five, or six points. And a set of five could be eight, nine, or 10 points. And these bands aren't so huge um, that they feel like horrible output randomness, but they are meaningful. You feel much better when you pull the three, when you've sold a set of three, than you do the one, which kind of feels awful well that's 300 percent better (laughs) (laughs) so it is (laughs) oh i yeah they aren't aren't so big but i i don't like this aspect of the game i think this is perhaps the design decision that is most off-putting to me um where it just feels like output randomness for output randomness sake um i guess you know what it's trying to do is make the decision space feel fuzzier or perhaps in some ways uh if you don't know if you're winning or losing that makes it more uh friendly at the face but you know i would contend it's actually making it much more uh challenging right and and, and less welcoming to new players over time um but yeah i don't know i just the fact that like I can sell three goods and get one point and you can sell three goods and get three points. It doesn't feel good to me. Like that just makes me feel bad whether I'm on the winning or losing side of it. Um, yeah. Like I didn't do anything to deserve this. You want to know what your, how much your wage is when you show up for work. You don't want to show up and have it be $12 an hour or Fifteen dollars an hour. Right. No sense of like, what am I getting paid today? Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Like, oh, today's a bad day. It, yeah. I think that do you. I feel like partially this is all of the things that you said, and then it's also Jaipur is a game with not a lot of uncertainty or a lot of unknown information. It's just the starting cards in your hand. So to me, it feels like another way of like, well, we don't want the the actual card mechanics to play into this. So I guess we'll put it on these points. 
Um, and yeah, it, it does, I guess, lower uh, the skill chain a little bit. It's easier to get upsets uh, in terms of beating people that are slightly better than you a little bit more often that could keep it more interesting for two mismatched opponents, which could be important for a two-player game, right? If you're, we talked about this in the Fox in the Forest a little bit, if you're much better than the one person you generally play a two-player game with, that can get really frustrating because you can't really play it with them and both feel like you have an equal chance of winning. So I guess in that way, this design decision makes a little bit of sense. But I think Jaipur is doing that in other ways as well with the way the camel swaps can work. Uh, the Even though you do have a lot of agency, you can also just get bad luck or just the way that cards flop off the top when you take one good, right? Yeah. There's enough randomness elsewhere that it doesn't feel like it needs to be here. Yeah, and it also really confounds the you know, calculations that go into deciding whether you should wait to try and complete a set of four versus three, um, because that could be a one point difference. Whereas, you know, going for a five, a three from a five is always going to be a five point difference. So there's something really strange there where it seems like it, it does do something to incentivize going for the bigger sets much more than the middle set. I wonder why that decision was made. Like, I, w- I feel like I might like this a little bit more if mm-hmm. the four, a set of four gave five, six, or seven, and the set of five gave nine, 10, or 11. So it was equally spaced. It just seems really strange to me. And it muddles that decision so much uh, that it almost feels to me in many cases like I just put my hands there. It's like, should I just sell these three now or should I, you know, try and wait? Because I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, it's a really interesting valuation. Uh, It feels like a a ripcord in some ways. It's sort of a parachute. Like you're going for the five and it doesn't happen. So the game's just going to punish you for something that's already bad for you in some ways. Right. Um, (laughs) Which, great. That's a nice piece of negative feedback uh, that it probably doesn't need. And it's interesting and maybe this is a good time to talk about the two-tiered good system because it kind of plays into the set collection. Um, so that, of course, being that there's a bunch of there's three goods uh, that are of the higher order goods: gold, silver, and jewels, which you always have to sell as pairs of two or more. Um, but they're harder. There's fewer of those cards in general, uh, or the lower order cards, which you can sell just one of to kind of. Uh, kick your opponent's feet out from under them and take a, a nice little swing at the top chip if you think they're already invested in them and take some points away from them. Um, but you're more likely to get larger sets of those, but those sets are going to be less valuable. I wonder if maybe this is a way of sort of restraining how much potential impact the higher order goods would have. If you, It's easier to get the lower order goods to five than it and the higher order goods, it's very hard to get to five, but sometimes you can get them to four. And maybe it's a way of making the game, broadening the strat- strategic depth there. I agree, though, that like I would like to feel how the game played if those different tiers were a little bit more aligned in terms of the point to effort ratios. Yeah. Yeah, It it's really interesting. It also feels like it, it's just another thing that brings that... Uh, the decision space like closer together and maybe this is something that i'm just thinking about now that that really contributes to the feel decision space like the reason that all decisions on your turn feel viable is because like the value of taking them all is generally going to be like 
very close together. Like the game feels like it's trying to squish everything together where it's like, yeah, the, you know, the elite, the better goods are, are more valuable, but they're harder to get. Right. So that makes it like closer again between like what type of good you should be taking on your turn when you choose to take or trade for goods. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think that's like interesting in that it's like opening up the decision space, but it's also making that decision space feel smaller, like in, in that other way. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And is, I, I feel like that also plays into the round end timers. Another thing that I feel like makes the decision space feel larger, but takes away that you don't have a ton of agency over because the three piles being sold being the end game condition. Sometimes you might sell a higher order good before, say there's three silver left. Maybe I'll sell just two silver to get that pile to one. And then it puts Jake in a really weird position. So, and I've sold all my silver. I'm never going to pick one up off the table again because now silver are worth half as much because you have to sell two silver cards to get that one token. So it's, it's crap. It's not good anymore. Um, it's fine. It's a little better than like some of the brown ones. Still better than two leather at the end. Yeah. It's still but... better than two leather, but like that's a way that I can potentially elongate the game, but I don't even necessarily have enough information on to in terms of knowing if I should be doing that or not always, just based on not necessarily knowing what's in your hand. Again, by the end of the game, if you're playing really close attention, because there's no new hidden information going to the opposing player's hand, you can have a pretty good sense of what's in the other player's hand. Um, but if the game's pretty close, it's hard to know, like, do I want to push? Do I want to uh, make the game go longer in this way? Or do I want to just wait, try to get the third silver and take that risk? There's interesting decisions there. I just, they don't always feel as rewarding as I want them to feel. Right. Because, and I think the, you know, hidden discs bonuses also plays into that where uh, the you don't have a lot of agency over ending the game when you want anyway, because it's all going to come up to or come down to like when cards come out of come the deck. Out. Right. Yeah. So you could say like, OK, I'm going to hold off and get one more silver because then I'm just going to like end this quick. But then like that could just, you know, there could be three silver cards stacked at the bottom of the deck. And, and you know, you just get kind of hosed by trying to do that. Um, and so you don't have a lot of agency over that. And then also like a lot of times you just don't know if you should be ending it because it's literally unknowable because like, well, if they got, I'm, I'm winning if they, you know, pulled an eight out of the five tip, but not if they have a 10. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, again, it's like, there is this cool dynamic. And I think that it's something again, where a highly skilled player is going to be able to do a better job of, you know, determining when they should be trying to end the game and when they should be trying to prolong the game and do a better job of angle shooting so that they can increase their percentages of being able to end the game or not end the game when they want to uh, over the course of the game. So I think it is doing interesting things of like raising the skill ceiling. Uh, but until you get there, when you know, it's not doing a whole lot for my experience when I'm playing the game. You know, a lot of times it's like, I think I should end it. Oh, cool! I can, so I, so I will. Um, but the, but but uh, there's not a lot of like higher order, you know, thinking that that is like getting me there that I'm doing anyway. Yeah, I guess most of that just depends on too. Like, does my opponent have a lot of cards they could sell? If so, I should definitely just end the game. Is their hand empty and my hand is full? 
If so, maybe I should not end the game and try to squeeze out an extra turn. Yeah, I guess that's another thing where like the the ability maybe it just is how fuzzy the decision space feels in a lot of ways and there's so many potential upsides to fuzzy decision spaces that can be really rewarding right we've talked about how when you're making we've talked about the difference between choices and decisions right and when you're making a a choice being something that is not a real decision and a decision being something where uh you don't know if it's the right path towards winning the game and there's an equal toss-up between two or more choices and i think that if you go too fuzzy uh, you do increase the amount of decisions but they start to feel less meaningful and i think that's where where jake and i might be feeling stuck and jake maybe you've played less than 10 games but i've probably played 50 games of jaipur i've played a lot of games of jaipur and i think if someone brought it to the table at like a coffee shop and said do you want to play jaipur Sure, I'll play a game of Jaipur with you. I don't want to. I don't know that I want to play two out of three, but like I'll play a game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's interesting too, and I wonder if the weight of the game comes into it as well with just like the amount of fuzziness in a a bigger, heavier game. I think for in some ways, like it might be more palatable to me because. There's so many different systems that I'm grappling with. I'm like trying to understand my interest is being pulled in these different directions. It's like, I want to try and get up this track, but also like, I can't forget about this territory over here. Uh, and, and oh, and I'm trying to like collect these like gold cards on the side. But when all you're doing is set collection mm. and it's really fuzzy about how to best do this, like one super narrowly focused thing. I, I mean, it just strikes me differently. And I think a, a lot of people, and it's not, of course, it goes on saying this isn't like an objective opinion about the value of this game. It's a game a ton of people love. And I think with good reason. But I think like for me, the fuzziness of the decisions combined with the weight and the mechanisms is like the whole package is just like leaving me wanting. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> now that... I feel I, I've almost said everything that I have to say about Jaipur, but something I do have to say that's very topical is the last time we covered a top 200 game and we weren't super positive about it, you titled it Terraforming Mars, Brendan Pants It. So are, are we going to title this episode uh, Jaipur, Jake Pants It? Yeah, I can do that. I, yeah. Okay, here's another question. Just this, I think we'll get at the heart of how we feel about the game. We have two. How about Jake eviscerates it. <laughs> Take it. Do you have more to say? <laughs> the bowels are on the table. Oh, oh my gosh! Should we? Let's see if it's I like that. I like that as a naming convention. Anytime we're not super positive, we just get pro- progressively <laughs> like more and more just Severe. disrespectful yeah. yeah so what about we have two games async games on board game arena of jaipur going we're in our first game we haven't even finished yet we've never done this in an episode do you want to continue those games or do you want to abandon them i would i mean i would, I would continue playing them because they're so quick it takes you okay. know no time to take your turn um i will say too like the games that I played of Jaipur real time are much more satisfying. So much better. I think like we should just put that out there. There are a lot of great games that we enjoy playing async, and Jaipur is not one I would ever choose to play 
async again because yeah. of and i think that just has to do with like the weight and how much it's like important to like hold information in your head Definitely. um and also just the implementation on board game arena wall is perfect for uh, real-time. real-time play it doesn't have like a log so i couldn't even like look and be like what did you take last turn so i like have in, in some cases i have like zero clue what you're going for uh or what you might have in your hand so like not really playable asynchronously uh i mean i'll keep playing them because the opportunity cost is so small but that that's probably the, worth pointing out it might it is- might honestly could be coloring my opinion a little bit uh in this review too We'll to bump it fair. up a little bit. And I, to be to be fair too, I've played many non-async games. So I don't think that my impression of Jaipur is being too clouded by the async games that we've been playing. Um, and I've also played a bunch of real-time games on Board Game Arena also. When Jake and I, a few months ago, I floated the idea of covering the game to Jake and I went back and played some real-time games to kind of grind the ladder there. Um, and kind of just was like, yeah, I feel the same way. Um, but it's- I agree. How is there no log? Like what? Yeah, there should be. And that just seems like an oversight. But I think I think too, like one thing that other people have pointed out in our Discord is that like Yukata uh is great for async. And it seems like almost like their implementation is like tailored to that in many ways. Where mm-hmm. like board game arena is really trying to create these games real-time. that are better for the real time experience. And I do think that uh kind of holds in, in most of my experiences playing primarily on those two platforms. Uh, yep. So, so kind of pro tip there, if you're ever interested in exploring async games, maybe check out uh, Yukata for that. And online board game or, or real time board game arena is just really fantastic and stepping their game up lately with tons of awesome new offerings. And I guess with that, with Jake laying all of the, cardboard chits torn apart rule books and staples on the table as he's eviscerated jaipur just pounding my chest right now (laughs) (laughs) i i think that that is going to conclude another episode of decision space pre-planners out there i would like to let you know that next week is going to be a what we talk about episode we have like a few things uh, that are potentially going into the nav computer that we could be heading in different directions in. So I'm not going to spoil it just yet. There might be another voice. There might not be. Um, (laughs) I guess on the interdecisional spaceship. After that, we're going to be covering Imhotep at some point. I don't know if it'll be the game directly after. That'll Uh, be fun. I can't wait for that one. Totally. A Phil Walker Harding game that we very much enjoy. And then a PWH joint. Yes. Paul Solomon, probably going to join for that episode. We'll get Paul back on as he's the honorary fan club president for Paul Walker Harding. I I feel like other news, uh, A Feast for Odin just added to Board Game Arena, a game that Jake has talked about on the podcast a lot. And when I haven't had the chance to play offline, I could see us covering that at some point in the future. I don't know what you think, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just heard that today. I'm really excited to check that out. Uh, maybe somebody who has alpha privileges can send me an invite. Uh, yeah, also Praga Kaput Regni by the designer of Underwater Cities. A uh, uh, decision, Suchi. a decision space favorite is is up on Yukata. Uh, so maybe Brenny should. Uh, you might want to think about learning that one because I'm I'm halfway through a couple of games of it now and really enjoying it. Um, so there's all, I mean, oh, as always, there's so many great games, uh, on the back burner. Uh, yeah. Oh no. 
I started trying to read the rule book when the baby was first born and I got like halfway through it. I was like, I, I don't know what I just read. Yeah. I, have, I can't do this. I had to watch so, a, I had to watch a rules video. And was it okay. Let's play a game more than 10 minutes long. Oh yeah. More than 20 minutes long. Oh yeah. More than 25 <laughs> minutes long. <laughs> more than 30. I think more I, than 35. I think more than all of that. I watched <laughs> to, so I, what I did was, and what I would recommend is I watched the John Gets Games playthrough of it, where he does a really great job of explaining how to play over the course of playing a game, which really, for like a heavy game like this, helps you visualize and like internalize the rules in a way that, like, after watching that video, I was able to like hop right on and start playing no problem, which is rare if I only watch like a how to play video. Definitely. I needed his video got me through learning underwater cities, which is actually not too complex. It's a lot, but uh, just like underwater cities, once you get into it, it all has like like you grok the internal logic of the game really quickly. So potentially be on the lookout for that and uh, follow us. Uh, you can find myself, Brendan Hansen, on Twitter at BurnsideBH and Jake Friedman over here on Twitter at JakeFRYD. Uh, we also would love to hear from you. So you could join our Discord, our decision space Discord, where interesting conversations are happening all the time uh, and where async and real time games are being played of many of the games we talked about on this show and others. Uh, and uh, thank you to uh, Hembry for, for our intro and outro music, their new single, Reach Out. Thank you so much for catching me as I was reaching out there, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good week, y'all. Take care. Bye. Bye.